This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, November 21st. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Well, in the midst of the big headlines dominating the midterm elections, a more subtle trend has gotten less attention, and that's the rise of pro-life candidates winning public office. Today, we'll sit down with Mallory Quigley of the Susan B. Anthony List, who spent time campaigning on the ground for pro-life candidates. Plus, one political party really does think the other party is racist, according to a new study. We'll unpack the details. But first, we'll cover a few of the top headlines. President Donald Trump addressed the death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a contributor to The Washington Post, who was allegedly killed in a Saudi consulate in Turkey last month. Trump said in a statement, quote, The crime against Jamal Khashoggi was a terrible one and one that our country does not condone. And we have already sanctioned 17 Saudis known to have been involved in the murder of Mr. Khashoggi and the disposal of his body, end quote. The president added, however, that we may never know all of the facts surrounding the murder of Mr. Jamal Khashoggi. In any case, our relationship is with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They have been a great ally in our very important fight against Iran. The United States intends to remain a steadfast partner of Saudi Arabia to ensure the interests of our country, Israel, and all other partners in the region. Well, House Democrats are about to investigate another Trump, not Donald, but Ivanka. Democrats on the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee are preparing to investigate Ivanka Trump's use of a personal email account. The Washington Post reported on Monday that Ivanka had used a personal account to conduct official government business. That would violate federal law. A spokesperson for Trump's lawyer said that when Ivanka was transitioning into a government role, she did use uh, a personal account sometimes, but almost always for scheduling and logistical purposes. There's new rules for White House reporters. In the aftermath of the legal back and forth between the White House and CNN, Chief White House Correspondent Jim Acosta. Journalists will now only be allowed to ask one question at a time and should assume Unless explicit permission is given, there won't be any follow-up cues allowed. Also, when journalists are done, they have to give up the mic. And lastly, if journalists don't obey the rules, they could lose their access to the White House. Well, a federal judge on Monday blocked an asylum rule that President Trump had signed just less than two weeks ago. Judge John Tiger of the Ninth Circuit, based in San Francisco, issued a temporary restraining order blocking a rule that banned the entry of migrants seeking asylum unless they failed to apply at a legal checkpoint. The ruling comes as President Trump has sought to toughen up border security in light of the migrant caravan headed toward the U.S. border. The Trump administration blasted the ruling, with the Justice Department and Department of Homeland Security releasing a joint statement on Tuesday, which said, quote, Our asylum system is broken, and it is being abused by tens of thousands of meritless claims every year. It is absurd that a set of advocacy groups can be found to, ha- to have standing to sue to stop the entire federal government from acting so that illegal aliens can receive a government benefit to which they are not entitled. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, talking to reporters Tuesday, suggested radical environmental groups were part of the problem regarding the massive fires that have been devastating California. Per CNN, Zinke discussed, quote, lawsuit after lawsuit by, yes, the radical environmental groups that would rather burn down the entire forest than cut a single tree or thin the forest. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue similarly struck a warning note saying, 
If not doing anything to the forests kept them pristine, I'd be all for that. That's the problem. That's been the theory from well-meaning environmentalists over the years, is that a forest that you did nothing to was pristine. We know that's not to be the case. Well, Texas Congressman Will Hurd officially won re-election on Tuesday after a two-week dispute with his Democratic opponent, Gina Ortiz-Jones, over the counting of provisional and other ballots. It was a tight race to the end, with just over 1,000 votes separating the two. Hurd is a two-term congressman representing a highly contested border district. That seat has flipped five times since the early 90s. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is ready to make some changes to the American holiday calendar. She tweeted this weekend, How is Columbus Day a holiday, but Election Day not? And when she got mocked for wanting more vacation days, responded, I am willing to compromise by eliminating Columbus Day to give Election Day off. Well, the uptick in long-term head injuries among football players has many parents concerned about sending their kids to play football. But for many parents, there's a middle path, flag football. The data show flag football is on the rise. Over the past three years, the number of 6- to 12-year-olds playing flag football has risen by 38%, up to more than 1.5 million. According to a study by the Sports and Fitness Industry Association, that's almost 100,000 more than those currently playing tackle football. And uh, as one who played both tackle and flag football as a kid, I can definitely recommend baseball. Uh, I think you're supposed to recommend football, (laughs) but I hear from those sports people that that's a big sport on Thanksgiving, but I just sit inside and eat pumpkin pie, so, you know. Well, up next, we'll talk to Mallory Quigley about the election of pro-life candidates to Congress. I'm Rob Bluey, Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal. And I'm Jenny Maltabano. Each weekday, The Daily Signal delivers the Morning Bell email direct to your inbox. We created The Morning Bell to be your one-stop source for credible news reporting and insightful commentary on the issues that are shaping the agenda. You can subscribe today and get it delivered to your inbox each weekday morning. Sign up now at dailysignal.com. Just click on the Connect button at the top of the page and subscribe today. Well, the big story of the election has been the Democrat wins. But joining us today is Mallory Quigley, Vice President of Communications for the Susan B. Anthony List. And she argues that there's another less reported on story. Voters cared about being pro-life. Mallory, thank you for joining us. And tell us, what did pro-lifers achieve in this election? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Kate. It's um, very exciting to talk about the pro-life wins from the from the 2018 election cycle. I think... Um, we, you know, Susan B. Anthony List had a had a, a, a massive ground game this cycle. We had 1,100 canvassers going door to door in nine Senate races, talking to voters face to face about the life issue, about the Democratic um, Senate candidates, the, the incumbents, their extreme records on abortion, votes against the pain capable bill, votes for taxpayer funding of abortion. And the um, pain capable bill is that which would ban most abortions after 20 weeks, right? Exactly right. Yes. Um, Mike Guzlaw, as as uh, now um, minority leader uh, Kevin McCarthy likes to call it. Um, so so we saw Senate candidates in a lot of key Senate races, Indiana, North Dakota, um Missouri, certainly in Florida, life being a big issue in the Senate races, also certain governor's races. But um, it it really goes to show how far the the life issue has come in politics, because if you remember back to 2012, 
which was the last time that these particular Senate seats, seats were were up for grabs. We had um, some Senate candidates who made some missteps on the life issue, weren't weren't um, hadn't really thought through uh, their position and how they were going to speak to it. Um, Mitt Romney, while he's pro-life, he certainly didn't choose to go on offense and make it an issue to distinguish between um, himself and former um, President Obama. And and after the election, bruising losses for Republicans and pro-life candidates, you had the RNC autopsy come out and they said, for the sake of growing the party, Republicans should not talk about social, social issues, including abortion. And, you know, Susan B. Anthony Liss, we we thought that that was a huge mistake. A lot of other groups did, too. But my boss, Marjorie, she she went and she was talking to all the candidates going into the 2014 election saying, you must go on offense about life. The other side's position is so extreme. And a majority of voters, whether they call themselves pro-life, pro-choice, Republican or Democrat, actually support the pro-life position. And um, we had candidates like uh, Tom Tillis, uh, Tom Cassidy, um, you know, Bill Cassidy, sorry, Tom Tillis, Bill Cassidy, uh, going up against people in the South. You know, when you're running against a Mary Landrew who says that she's pro-life uh, and and really has obfuscated her position over the years, we had to go in and do a lot of education for voters in Louisiana, uh, Arkansas, Mark Pryor, you know, another kind of moderate. But they have the same voting records as, you know, the most pro-abortion extremists in the Senate. Uh, and the candidates were really going on offense. We started going door to door that year. We visited um, about half a million homes. Uh, and then 2016, when we had all the Republican candidates for uh, for the presidential primary sort of jockeying to be who was more pro-life, you know, and Rand Paul came out with that amazing question. He just turned it on his head, said, you know, go ask Debbie Wasserman Schultz why it's OK to to take the life of a seven pound child in the womb days before its due date. And this really culminated with the president himself, now president, you know, really drawing a clear distinction between himself and Hillary Clinton in that last presidential debate in 2016. So so here we are, 2018. We've got candidates like Kevin Kramer, Mike Braun, um, Josh Hawley. These guys are are the their pro-life position is just so hardwired into them. They're so strongly pro-life. Marsha Blackburn, another one. And they really used the, the issue to their advantage. And we're talking about it on the campaign trail, including it in their ads. Kevin Kramer came out with this amazing ad in North Dakota highlighting um you know, height camps vote against that paying capable bill with his daughter, his pregnant daughter who had a baby just um, just before election day. Anyway, it was really a, a beautiful moment because you've got the candidates going on offense. And then here comes the Susan B. Anthony list canvassers going door to door, talking to voters at their doorsteps about this issue. And it it life and the pro-life position really permeated a lot of the a lot of the discussion um, for the Senate races. Yeah, it's interesting how you talk about the the Republican Party sort of maybe having a blind spot there uh, about what would actually drive out voters. I, I'd certainly know people who consider themselves social conservatives and when Republicans back off of that, they become less inclined to vote for Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. It Historically, if you look at the polling, uh, Gallup does a lot of this about people who are single issue voters. And when it comes to abortion, there really is an intensity on the pro-life side, historically, have, being a pro-life candidate, that gives you an edge in elections because the people that care about pro-life are more dedicated 
than the people who care about the being on the pro-choice side. And this is what we found, you know, going door to door. We had, you know, 2.7 million conversations happening over the last year and a half. We started canvassing in July 2017. And that's what our canvassers found is that, you know, when you're talking to somebody about, did you know that your senator voted to send your taxpayer dollars to abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood. You and I are complicit in this procedure through our taxpayer dollars. And they voted against something to stop abortion after five months. We There was conversions happening left and right across our, uh, our battleground uh, target states. And um, it was really powerful to just get an update every week from the canvassing team about what they were hearing. Yes, it does. It, it's an issue that really not just uh, reaffirms pro-life voters, but has the po- the the power to persuade people to come over from the other side. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the canvassing. And mm. uh, full disclosure, we're friends. So I heard a lot <laughs> from Mallory over the past six months where she was basically never in D.C. about how people throughout America were responding to the elections. But I find it interesting because, um, you know, we talk so much about civility these days. Yeah. And one of the big things that the experts, as it were, have said about political discussion and civility is we need to have face-to-face conversations. We cannot just be watching our respective teams on cable news and listening to the yelling. We need to engage directly. And that doesn't just mean, you know, D.C. people. That means everyone. And I'm sure a lot of people, um, you know, canvassing were a bit nervous. I mean, knocking on a door, oh, yeah. that's a bold move. I mean, <laughs> and saying, I'm going to speak, you know, what I believe to be true, and we're going to have mm-hmm. a conversation. So, you know, you were involved with a lot of training of volunteers and the obviously SBA list had, I think you said 1100. Um, so tell me, what were some of the highlights from that experience? And do you think there's anything that we should keep in mind as we have political discussions generally? Yeah, well, just that face to face truly is key. You know, I completely agree with you. The cable news and also on Facebook. I mean, <laughs> there's so much, you know, the, yes. it's easy to. Um, you know, get a quick, uh, like a quick high from from just writing back something kind of sassy and not really thinking about what this means for your relationship with whoever the person may be on the other end of the, you know, of the interwebs. But yes, we had so many excellent canvassers. And first off, they, they're, all of our people are very deeply motivated by this issue. You know, they don't, it's, we're not just getting any old volunteer off the street that, you know, there are people that really strongly believe in the life issue because when you go up to someone's door and you're talking about something as personal as this and something that people feel so deeply about, you know, oftentimes more issues come up and we had incidents where, you know, um, moms were really so moved by by the act of our canvasser coming up to their door and saying like yeah I'm pro-life like I'm here to talk to you about the election and they call their kid from the other room and say like this is my daughter like I was encouraged to abort her or you know I chose life in these difficult circumstances it really became an opportunity for storytelling um some women who were pregnant who were considering abortion um we were able to minister to them and and give them alternatives. Um, And, you know, that's not happening every day, but it it did happen. We we definitely got stories like that. And also a lot of of women who have experienced abortion and who were uh, suffering still, like, you know, it might have been recently or even even decades later. I I witnessed um, when I was 
out with the canvassing team in Indiana in the suburbs of Indianapolis, a woman who said, you know, I I had an abortion and she was really conflicted about it. Mm. And uh, Sandy, who was our Indianapolis um, field director, she just said, can I, can I give you a hug? And, and they hugged and it was so, it was just like a really beautiful moment. And I talked to a lot of our, our, our canvassers, a lot college students. Um, we had a lot of great kids from Hillsdale actually, uh, who kept canvassing. We did a little, a trip to North Dakota after the school year had begun. Um, and my friend Megan, who who's uh, I think she's going into her junior year at Hillsdale, she just said how she prays every time, like as she's walking on the street, like and is walking up to each door. She is praying for the person on the other side of that door because you never know what that person is facing uh, and what they've been through and how they're going to respond. And it's it is definitely as hard. Like I mean, I. I'm going in every day and I'm talking to the media and I'm talking to, you know, people that disagree with me here in DC, but I sort of know the purpose of all these conversations going into it. Um, and the canvasser does too, but the voter doesn't, obviously they don't know who, what this person intends mm-hmm. to talk to them about. So I think having that really prayerful mentality and just looking at it as a gift to be able to talk to people about this and change hearts and minds, it's was really something to be a part of and to witness. It was really cool you know, across the states. You know, one of the interesting things that we've talked about before on the podcast is how a, there's a surprising number of Democratic voters who consider themselves pro-life yes. and uh, stunningly hardly any elect federally elected Democrats right. consider themselves, with a couple of exceptions. Yeah. Um, did you find in your canvassing that a lot of folks who were, uh, you know, reliable Democratic voters consider themselves Democrats mm. were also pro-life? Well, so... This year, for 2018, our target wasn't so much persuadable voters, but in 2016, we were talking to many Democrats. And yes, we did find, you know, the, the it it looks like about a third of rank-and-file Democrats consider themselves to be pro-life. Amazing. Yes. And you would never guess looking at the federal, the makeup of the federal legislature. But we actually went canvassing back in March for... Congressman Lipinski in his primary because he had a very uh and he's a Democrat. He's a Democrat. From yes. Area, yeah. Yes. Um that was awesome. So we had uh maybe 40 college students from Notre Dame um and a couple of other places for that weekend right before the primary election for Dan Lipinski. We went door to door in the suburbs of Chicago for 4 days talking to specifically Democrat voters because we're trying to turn them out for a Democratic primary. And that was a very cool thing for me to experience and I think for the kids, but but for a lot of us who've been in politics now for a few years, like to go door to door and know that it's Democrat voter, uh, Democrat voters on the other side and we have this in common, we have this, this pro-life issue in common, uh, was very powerful and speaks, I think, to the unity of this issue. I mean, but we're talking about you know, the, where the pro-life movement is right now in America is we would like to protect babies after five months, more than halfway through pregnancy when they can feel pain and to stop taxpayer dollars from being a part of, of this procedure. And that is absolutely a winning issue. No surprise there, I think, for most people. So, so yes, we have experienced um, support from Democrat voters. And as we go in, you know, um, 
Well, I just want to say when you say that's absolutely a winning issue, I think that's something that, you know, is so infuriating is we see polling data that shows what two thirds of the country supports banning abortion Mm -hmm. after 20 weeks. And the U.S. is one of, I believe, only seven seven countries Mm -hmm. that allows that. So everyone who wants to be like Europe, here's your chance. And it's incredible to me that, frankly, a lot of Republican politicians don't seem willing. They, um, you know, they might take the right vote, but they're not going to fight on this issue. And, you know, what is there that two thirds of the country agrees on these days? Like, yeah, that's a great point. I think that, though, I think there are more now than there used to be, you know, like, you know, six years ago today, um, there weren't as many Republicans that were willing to talk about it. But especially having life be such a big issue in these statewide races, you know, like and the governor's races, too. I mean, in Florida and Iowa, you had Kim Reynolds, very like very strong pro-life champion. She signed the most aggressive piece of legislation that there is uh, out in the in the states right now. The the heartbeat bill going up against a guy who was on the board at Planned Parenthood in Iowa for many years. And she won. Um, mm-hmm. So so having these these competitive races statewide um statewide elections, abortion being an issue, you know, and the Democrats, pro-abortion Democrats did not want to talk about the life issue this cycle. And I I read this very interesting, um, I believe it was in the Washington Post article about the House and how sort of how things fell out, you know, the shakedown in the House and, and why Republicans lost um, the way that they did. But there was a very interesting nugget in there about Nancy Pelosi and the the messaging that they that they laid out for House candidates more than a year and a half ago, and it was do not talk about Planned Parenthood, only talk about health care in the context of people losing coverage for pre-existing conditions. Much different message than we've seen, particularly in 2016, where they were t- campaign, you know Hillary Clinton was campaigning about um, ending the Hyde Amendment, which protects, you know, federal taxpayer dollars from going to elective abortion. So there, that's all to say the other side, I think, knows that theirs is not a winning issue. And they they weren't championing it this cycle. They were really running away from it. And that's why I think to, we saw especially um, that great contrast in a lot of the Senate races. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mallory. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101-style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you for joining us. Kirsten, we start with you. There's been a lot of talk about why white women support President Trump despite of, or perhaps because of, his policies and his tone. What's your take on this? 
Well, I think there's a lot of different ways that we have to look at this. I think one of the first things is that people will say uh, that they they support him for reasons other than his racist language, which we don't have time to go through. But there's all sorts of things starting from the launch of his campaign all the way up until the latest campaign, the way he demonized, uh, you know, people trying to come to our country on the caravan. And they'll say, well, I'm not racist. I just voted for him because, you know, I I, I didn't like Hillary Clinton or uh, and I just want to say that that's not that doesn't make you not racist. It actually makes you racist. If you support somebody who does racist things, that makes you racist. So I just want to establish that. That was Kirsten Powers in an interview with CNN earlier this week. And apparently she's far from the only one with that view. A new survey monkey poll done for Axios found that six out of 10 Democrats think Republicans are bigoted, racist, sexist. In contrast, only three out of 10 Republicans think the same of Democrats. Meanwhile, 41% of Democrats would be somewhat or very disappointed if a close family member married someone with different political views, while 25% of Republicans would be. So, Daniel, what do you what do you think about this? Do you think this is why we have so many tough holiday dinners? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, speaking of you know, Thanksgiving this week, it's definitely uh, the classic Thanksgiving uh, conundrum. Um, conundrum is how do you handle uh, Thanksgiving with relatives and friends who may differ with you politically, Don't which is such politics. a mo- <laughs> it's such a modern uh, phenomenon, really that. We would be so divided by politics. Obviously, there were times in our history where you, you were, you know, civil war, that kind of thing. Um, I but would say we were more divided during the civil we war. We were more divided uh, during the civil war. But uh, in, in recent memory, I think it's hard to imagine a time in which people identified with their political ideology almost as though it were their religion. Well, I would just say I distinctly remember as a child in my um my extended family is politically divided, but also politically intense. So it's a great combination. But I remember uh, going up to where we were going and uh, them playing on the radio discussion of how were you going to deal with the Florida recount in 2000 with your family who had differing views? Oh, yeah. So that was pretty intense. But you're right. I would largely agree, except for, you know, that that weird moment. Things have not been as tense. Yeah. And, and then I do think that Kirsten Powers in that clip that we played, um, I mean, she was just being overly simplistic. I mean, goodness. I mean, there are all kinds of good reasons that people are voting for President Trump uh, on the policies that he is has been advancing. I mean, there's no question. The Supreme Court justices, the, the court system, and she's just kind of dismissing all of that. And I think it's easier for her to dismiss all of that because she disagrees with them on policy. So I would, I would want to ask her, okay, but what if, you know, what if there was a Democrat who had the same rhetoric as Trump? but was passing policies that you really liked and thought the country needed, um, I have a feeling it would be a lot more complicated for her at that point. So I, 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 I think the, the, the key point here is we need to stop defining people by their gender or by their race or just categorizing them uh, in, in a kind of identity politics way. Well, and I would also say, while I don't agree with all of President Trump's rhetoric, and for instance, I was very disappointed in how he handled Charlottesville uh, about a year ago. Um, you know, some of the stuff that the left is trying to do is say that any opposition to the migrant caravan is racist. And that's simply ridiculously unfair. And I think there's other things that you can point to, you know, that people have different views on. But there does seem to be this uh, this push by the left to make things which are not racist, which are not about race, and say that they are racist, 
um, you know, maybe the ban against um, seven of the, what, 56 Muslim majority countries could be another one. Arguably, that is a national security measure that has nothing to do with race. Which and the you, Supreme Court upheld. Right. But, you know, I people on the left can characterize that as racist. Sure. So anyway, we don't need to get into all that. But, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting coming up with what you can agree with or not. I thought the marriage question was interesting because... I think if any of my siblings or close friends, if they married someone who disagreed with them politically but was pro-life, I think I could live with it. I yeah. think, but on that one issue, I would, I mean, of course I would live with it, but I would not, I would be very sad. Yeah. And it, and that, and I, I actually feel the same way. And, and uh, it's like, I'm I'm not a, sort of against this, um, this idea of, you know, your your political party is sort of like, your religion because it kind of has become that. And so to, to marry someone who is like kind of uh, lockstep, a member of the other party is like marrying someone who has a completely different worldview because that's, that's how divided the parties are now. Right. And I think that has some good things in the sense of like, you know, conservatism wasn't really alive in the United States, arguably. And, you know, some of the past decades, obviously, Bill Buckley in the 50s, et cetera, really contributed to the rise of conservatism. And um, I think that's a good thing. But, yeah, as you said, it has made the ideological differences much sharper. There is not much common ground. So what is what does Thanksgiving look like at your uh, family meal? You know, when you're when you're all together mm-hmm. and not all politically on the same page. You know, it, it varies. There's never been actually, and I want to say this to the credit of my extended family, there has never been an ugly fight about politics, nice. even though there are very deep divides. Um, you know, I think there's been some good chats. I feel like generally we try to sidestep politics, but it does come up occasionally. Um, it's been a few years since I've been able to spend it with my extended family. We need airplane prices to go down on this day. But, um, you know, it's often... Very civil conversations where we will discuss what we disagree on, but we will also, I think, try to understand what the other person, where they're coming from and why they think that. And um, it's good. Even 2016 didn't destroy it. So Yeah. You know, I really do think that uh, you, no matter what someone's political ideology is, there's always some, you know, kernel of truth or some insight that you can agree on mm-hmm. uh, at some basic level with the other person. And even though you might take that to different conclusions, uh, it's important to realize that, uh, you know, the other person has an experience and they, um, you know, that experience is, is legitimate. You might interpret it differently, but uh, we need to recognize um, that we're all, we're all part of the human family and we're not, you know, we need to get away from this, this beat each other, beat each other up all the time, tribalism. Well, you can submit your application for the UN. But, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're right. And I think, you know, just as we were just talking to Mallory about, I mean, this is where face-to-face contact is so important. Yes. So I actually hope if you are going to have a Thanksgiving with people of political diversity and then it's okay to bring up politics, I mean, I think, you know, if you can have fruitful discussions, maybe where no one changes their mind, but maybe there's more understanding on both sides where someone is coming from. I mean, I think that's great. Yep, Totally. And we are going to leave it there for today. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow.
You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit dailysignal.com.